0: Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a panel conversation about the late French film critic, Serge Dainey. FLC was proud to recently present Never Look Away, Serge Dainey's radical 1970s, a series that celebrated the film critic and the films he championed in his book La Rampe occasioned by its long-awaited English translation under the new title, Footlights. The series ran from January 26 through February 4th and featured a robust selection of works by master filmmakers, with many presented on 35mm or in digital restorations. Never Look Away, Serge Dainey's radical 1970s was sponsored by MUBI. To complement and contextualize the screenings, FLC was pleased to convene a panel of critics and programmers to discuss the significance of Serge Daney's thought today, with a particular emphasis on how his politically-driven analysis and radical enthusiasms of the 1970s might speak to our contemporary moment. This discussion considers the relation between mise-en-scene and moral perspective the cinema as an antidote to advertising, and the critic's role as an ally to filmmakers. Our panelists included The New Yorker's Richard Brody and translator of Footlights and series co-programmer Nicholas Elliott, and was moderated by series co-programmer and FLC assistant programmer Madeline Whittle. From February 29th through March 10th, UniFrance and Film at Lincoln Center present the 29th edition of Rendezvous with French Cinema, our popular annual festival that showcases the verve, creativity, and depth of contemporary French cinema in a variety of genres. View this year's full lineup and get tickets now at filmlink.org rdv24. Now, please enjoy the conversation between Richard Brody, Nicholas Elliott, and Madeline Whittle.
1: Thank you both so much for being here. I, speaking for myself, I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation uh, really since Nicholas and I first conceived it uh, uh, in the process of planning this program. We uh, really felt it was very important to sort of anchor and contextualize this fascinating assortment of films that we've pulled together in this program by providing kind of an introduction to Serge Dene, the man, the thinker, the critic, the cinephile, um, and hopefully uh, inspiring our audience to, as I said earlier, get to know him better. So to start things off, Nicholas, as a translator who has uh, invested a great deal of time and thought and resources into this project of translating this book. Could you give us an overview, uh, just sort of an introduction uh, to who Serge Genet was and why we still care about his legacy and his contribution?
2: Sure. Thank you, Maddie. And thank you all for being here. It's really um, truly deeply moving to see so many people gather to talk about someone who means so much to me, and I think to a lot of other people who care deeply about cinema and its impact on the world, Serge Danet. And I hope that my emotion won't get in the way of my lucidity and eloquence. Um, I'm going to take a moment to tell you about Serge Danet's life, because I'm not sure that the information is that available in the English language sphere. And I think that his life um, really informs the work Particularly as he came to the end of his life, he really saw um, a parallel between his experience and the history of cinema that he lived through and that he thought through. So I think it's worth my just starting off um, with a few words about his life. He was French. He was born in Paris in 1944. He was resolutely working class. He never knew his father. He was born in a working class neighborhood of Paris at the time, the Bastille area, to a single mother. And he grew up mostly with his mother and his grandmother in a home that he described as having no books, very little culture, but the great adventure for young Serge and his mother and his grandmother was to go to the movies. This was a time when in a working class neighborhood of Paris, you could have, you know, a dozen neighborhood movie theaters playing all sorts of films in double features, triple features with live attractions in between movies. So they went to the movies all the time. And it was the formative experience of this young boy's life, along with looking at maps. This is a very important point that he makes, how important maps were to him in terms of opening up the world, and cinema would come to really be, for him, an essential way of exploring, knowing, feeling, caring about the world. The two critical events for Serge Danet that propelled him to become the person that we're interested in today were... Two film screenings, both by the French filmmaker Alain René. The first was a screening that his high school class was shown. So this would be in the late-ish 50s, he was, of René's short film Night and Fog, which some of you might know is a very important film about the concentration camps. And I'm not sure how historically accurate I am saying in saying this, but in many ways, the first film about the concentration camps or the only film about the concentration camps 10 years after they were liberated that really mattered. When Serge Danet saw this film, um, he had a a tremendous shock. And the way he described it was the shock of realizing, I think I should look at my notes just so I, I get this absolutely right, if I can find it quickly, because I want to do it justice. Well, realizing the horror of the world, that the world, that this thing could happen, and realizing how just, in the sense of justice, a film could be. These two parallel things, which I think are so crucial to his entire thought. Facing the world, never look away as we have it, and the film as a just act. So that's the first thing. The next thing that happens is, in 1959, once he's already pretty into movies, he goes to see the first feature by the same filmmaker, Alain René, Hiroshima, Mon Amour, which, as many of you know, is a film that deals with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. It deals with the aftermath of French collaboration, so the war years in France as well. And this was, forgive me a, the metaphor, ground zero for Serge Danais. He walked out of this movie knowing that cinema was going to be his life. That was it. This was a time when in Paris, if you're into movies, you read Cahier du Cinema. It was the Yellow Cahier, um, the, the magazine that... One of the founders of was the great André Bazin, film critic, and many of the writers were the young, soon-to-be, or becoming directors of the French New Wave. Jean-Luc Godard, Jacques Rivette, Éric Romer, François Truffaut, to a lesser degree, Claude Chabrol. And so, Danet slowly, slowly came into Cahiers du Cinema's orbit. He himself described himself as someone who, in these years, was rather drifting, He went to the movies all the time, he studied literature at university, he didn't have a strong direction, he just knew that movies was everything, so to speak. And around 1962, he and his fellow cinephile, Luis Correqui, traveled to Los Angeles, Luis Correqui, by the way, would also become a notable critic, and he's also a filmmaker. The two of them traveled to Los Angeles with this great idea of interviewing a bunch of dinosaurs of Hollywood cinema, and using these interviews to negotiate their entry into Cahiers du Cinéma. So they interviewed Leo McCary. It's the only interview that any French journalist ever did with McCary. They interviewed Buster Keaton, they, Hawks, Sternberg, Joseph H. Lewis. I think that's it.
3: Cucor. Cucor. Because Cucor. That famous story that he tells.
2: Do you want to tell the story? I don't remember it offhand.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. This is um,
2: <laughs> variation of voices. So Cucor
3: apparently so interviews Cucor, and oh yeah, I know. Right. So and and, and, and mentions that you know the the, the most that, that Nicholas Ray's Wind Across the Everglades is you know the greatest recent American film, and Cucor laughs. Cucor laughs, and Danay said in the interview. This is in the interview, right? This is the interview with Bill Crone where he where he says, um, we were hurt, but it didn't shake us in our convictions. It,
2: it, it's it's really nice that Richard tells that story, because it has to be emphasized. You know, this is 60 years ago now. Obviously, there was no internet. It, the, it took 20 hours. They, they It was a charter plane, 20 hours to get there. They were they were nobodies, these two young guys. Like, the, the level to which they were rubes is, is cannot be overstated, and the idea that these two young guys went and talked to Hawks and Kukor and Sternberg, and, and that there was this clash of cultures of these young people in Paris who thought that these people were artistic gods, whereas they thought of themselves perhaps as journeymen, or if they thought of themselves as artists, had a very, very different perspective on what their art was. It, it's just kind of boggles the mind to think of these two young guys turning up and managing to talk to Howard Hawks anyhow they got into Cahiers du Cinéma Serge Danet wrote for Cahiers throughout the 60s and then came May 68 which for him was a total reset he was part of the group that occupied the Théâtre de l'Odéon that was one of the the centers of the student revolts of of the May 68 uprisings in France was the occupation of this, this theater, which, just to be very clear, is not a movie theater. It's one of the great theater theaters of the capital of France. And the reason I underline that is that Danet would later talk about how May 68 was not really represented in cinema, that the art form that spoke or reacted to May 68 was theater, that there was a theatrical discourse that was germane to May 68, and that really, it's kind of a a stunning failure for such a a cinematic hotbed as Paris to have not really been cinematically alive to May 68, though the film community had helped to foment the uprisings of May 68, but I don't want to go down that path right now. Anyhow, reset for Serge Danet. He spends the next two or three years mostly traveling around the world, mostly traveling in what was then called the third world, so the global south, traveling with very little money, traveling at, for a, an entire year in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I mention this because it's important, because later Dane would be a film, of, an early proponent of African cinema. He writes about it in Footlights. He went to the Ouagadougou Festival um, on his own dime when he was at Kaidu Cinema later in the 70s. He's someone who really invested in spending time in these parts of the world when it wasn't an easy thing to do. And he didn't do it on a luxury safari. He did it on his two feet, which is something that he did throughout his life. He was a great traveler. He was a great lover of postcards. Um, and during the same travel period, he traveled to India where he got a very severe case of tuberculosis, and returned to France. Once back in France, around 1971, he started writing for Cahiers du Cinema again. And this is a period when Cahiers du Cinema was radically politicized, Maoist, very theoretical. Um, It's a film magazine that has no pictures in it. It's a film magazine that doesn't deal with a lot of films. Um, When it does deal with films, it's Collective essays about a single John Ford film, Young Mr. Lincoln, that run 30 pages. Um, I won't get into the, the positions, the dogmatic nature of the thing, but it, it's, a, it's an extreme experiment in film culture, theory, and political thought. And that's what Denny gets into. And he describes it as a period when the people involved were probably not doing very well. They found some kind of collective will in being together and having this project, but individually, on some level, he considers that they were probably ill. And by 1973, 1974, the steam was starting to run out of this. And he describes it as there being a meeting where the collective said, look, can, can someone just, like, take care of business here? Can, can someone just, like be in charge and and you'll be paid, I don't know, 700 francs a month. And Danet was the only one who was up for it, and he did it. And from that period on, he, with a gentleman called Serge Toubiana, who had been an activist, who joined Cahiers du Cinéma and learned cinema through his participation in Cahiers du Cinéma with a political background, and is still to this day a a very important person in French film culture, the two of them were the editors-in-chief of Cahiers and took it through this period that is dealt with in the book Footlights into the very early 80s where Cahiers returns to cinema, so to speak, eventually starts to run pictures again, um, eventually decides to write about big American films like Apocalypse Now, et cetera, et cetera. But I would argue, and I think we'll talk about this at length, maintains a strong political core, which I would say is not politics in the sense of we are Marxist or we are Marxist-Leninist or we are Maoist, but politics as an understanding of the world, as a demand for an ethics, as a reading of images, etc. I'll finish up on Serge Danet now. In 1981, he had kind of again run out of steam with Cahiers du Cinema, and he was given the opportunity to run the cinema pages in Libération, which was then... Really a left wing quite an exciting uh, French daily newspaper, um, which had never really had an official film critic. It, it had kind of fly by night people who did other things and and Danet for several years became the person who was in charge of the film pages and it was he would personally do the layout he wrote about whatever he wanted. he was very proud to say later that if he wanted to run a front page on Manuel de oliveira, the great at that time, septuagenarian Portuguese filmmaker, he could do it. I read it um, from a distance in time and space as a period of great freedom and um, critical and intellectual activist advocacy. Uh, And he mentions in one of the interviews I read that when he hired for these pages, he hired 80% homosexuals, both male and female, which I think is important to mention because Serge Danet was himself gay, and he felt that by hiring largely gay critics for Liberation, he was making up for being part of what he described as prudish Cahiers du Cinema. Certainly in that period, Cahiers du Cinema was not the most sexy environment for critical discourse. (laughs) Um, I'm now going to really fast forward. Um, Danet wrote for Liberation initially as a film critic. He then started writing about television, what films were like on television, the war on Iraq, um, the first Gulf War, um, on television. He, he really became very concerned with images on television. And at this point, I've gotten us to 1991, he was dying of AIDS. And the last moment of his life is the founding of the quarterly kathik which is named after the Jacques Tati film that we're screening tomorrow, um, which was a quarterly, again, no pictures. I would argue just on instinct sexier than the 70s Cahiers, though I don't know exactly how. But it was was a quarterly where Serge Danet brought together his people, Jean-Claude Biette, a critic and filmmaker whose film Le Théâtre des Matières we're also showing tomorrow, um, the critics, Patrice Rollet, Raymond Belour, Sylvie Pierre, and, and many filmmakers, many really leading thinkers about cinema around the world, in the U.S., Jonathan Rosenbaum, to take a, a slightly longer view of cinema on a quarterly basis. And this quarterly, though Danet died in the spring of 92, so after only four issue issues, this quarterly continued basically to this day, though it's now recently become an annual. Um, and in the final moments of his life, Danet gave a few really, really deep interviews. One was for a French television program called Oceanique. It's a three-hour interview called Itinéraire d'un cinéphile. It's just him sitting at a desk talking about his life and really matching his life to this thing of modern cinema. The cinema that starts after World War II. The cinema that's cognizant of the concentration camps. The cinema that starts with Rossellini, with Night and Fog, with Hiroshima Mon Amour, continues with the new wave. um, And yeah, made sense of his life through cinema. And and that's something that I think we'll touch on again um, now. And thank you for listening to that. I'm sorry it was so long. I just think that it's important to have that bedrock for this conversation. Now we'll hear some other voices.
1: So building on that, taking that uh, uh, sort of summation of who Dane was as a person, I want to now zoom back out to the present moment and uh, just take a moment to speak with you both about what Danae means to you, to us, now in this present moment, individually? Uh, Starting with you, Richard, as a working critic, uh, as somebody who's written extensively, uh, in particular about uh, Godard and French cinema, as, of course, Danae was uh, very much rooted in that environment. Could you just talk about your own relationship to him as a writer, as a fellow critic, and as uh, 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 what his criticism and thought has been to you uh, coming into this conversation?
3: Yeah, um, I can, I, I can date my awareness of the existence and work of Serres to a very specific day. I brought a little prop here. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm not going to, booklet. There, well, the original, um, 1977. So I was 19. I was in college and, uh, at the Bleecker Street Cinema. They ran a you know, Caille du Cinéma in New York series for uh, about a week. Uh, I was already a, you know, crazy, not a Francophile, but a Godardophile. I, you know, I was sort of a Francophile because I, you know, spoke French, but I was a Godardophile. Godard was, was essentially my my Hiroshima Mon Amour was breathless. You know, I was 17, I saw breathless, and made me know that my, you know, entire life was going to have to do with movies. And when I found out that there was going to be, you know, I didn't know anything about Cahiers, I guess I had, I knew about it from Godard, obviously, because I'd read Godard and Godard, but I didn't have contact with what Cahiers was in 1977. I was really not aware of it. Um, I didn't even know that it was still publishing. Um, but um, when I found out, I guess from reading The Village Voice, because how else would one, would one, would one find such things out? that there was going to be some series at the Bleecker Street Cinema where I went all the time where they were going to be showing new films by Godard who knew Um, you know I got on the train and went on a Thursday on a Monday October 31st 1977 to see Ici et ailleurs and Comment ça va and uh they also showed Numéro 2, but that was not that night. Uh, Danet was in town to introduce a bunch of films, but he was not there for that particular night because I couldn't be there when he was. Um, and they had this little booklet. And in this booklet, they have um, a, an introduction by somebody named T.L. French. Um, and then they have a, a long interview with uh, Danet, which is published in the Cinema House in the World. And then the terrorized, the, terror, the by Serge Danet, a piece which is in Footlights. Um, so I, you know, I essentially from the, I associated in my mind, you know, this new cinema, which also included, you know, they showed Kings of the Road by Vendors, they showed Chantal Ackermann's news, uh, news from Home. So, you know, I, uh, Fortini Cani by stroben which I didn't get to see then, but I saw within the year because my film professor was Gilberto. Perez at, and he uh, was very Strobrietien. Um, he wrote a famous article about them in art form in the early 70s that um, Strob supposedly said was the best thing he ever written about them so um, I saw sofortinii soon thereafter but the only thing I saw was ici et ailleurs and comment ça va and so for me you know Serge Denis is inseparable in my mind from that period of of cinema um, but then I would, you know, I didn't really have a lot of access to the French press in the 80s, but I was in Paris in 83, and I certainly read Libé, you know, every day, and read Danet, and read the section that he curated, edited. Um, you know, in some weird way, you know, you... you Love involves opposition too. Um, and, you know, in a way, the image of Serge Danet for me as a practicing critic long before. Cinema House in the World was translated long before Footlights was translated. You know, I've had a few few books. My favorite book is uh, L'exercice à des Profitables, Monsieur. The Exercise was Beneficial, Sir, um, which is a quote from Moonfleet. Um, But that's kind of my favorite book of Danais because it's a book of notes. It's a book of scraps. It's a book of Danais offhand um, that was published posthumously. And, you know, I consider Danais sort of a philosopher of cinema, and I think that that's a weirdly equivocal position for a critic to be in. Um, because to me, what distinguishes Danet from what got me started in not French cinema, but French film criticism, namely, you know, Godard on Godard, and his contemporaries at Cahiers, meaning Rivette, Chabrol, Truffaut, Romer, is that they were filmmakers, and Danay is not a filmmaker. And that, to me, is a, no pun intended, a critical difference. In the sense that, like, there's this really great, the best thing for me in Footlights is the raw and the cooked. and The last big piece in it, I guess the second to last big piece in it, in which he sums up what's going on and what's not going on in the French cinema in 1980. And he refers to La Politique des auteurs, and he says which, you know, the young men of Cahey were bright enough to invent in order to become its beneficiaries. (laughs) And I think that's exactly right, except for one thing. I think that they were intending to do far more than be its beneficiaries. They were intending to, like, they were inventing a kind of cinema that they would make that would then become, by which they would become their benefit. In other words, there's a psychological dimension to the politique des Hauteurs. It's not just a matter of, like, creating an image for self-promotion later on. It's who are our cinema fathers, so to speak. What kind of cinema do we make? and why We're not just hustlers who want to get into the movies. We're not, we're not just looking to break in. We have an idea of movies as art, as very self-consciously a kind of art, as very self-consciously in regard to a particular history of cinema. And in thinking about the auteur, we're not just thinking about, like, what some people think of as the dogmatic side of auteurism, namely, I'm sorry we're getting away from that. but the, dogma- the dogmatic side, namely, you know, the, uh, sort of the weird identification with the figure of the filmmaker rather than with what's on the screen. Their argument is, in effect, we're, we are identifying psychologically with filmmakers. We are in the mind of, or, of Carse, or the other way around, Hitchcock is in our head. Hawkes is in our head. You know, Dreyer is in our head. We're not, you know, whatever they put on the screen, we love it. And because we love it, it's in us and we're in it. And that's not in Danais. I'm Sorry for yelling. Um, You're passionate.
2: <laughs> it's good to be passionate.
3: That's not in Danae. And so, for me, in a certain way, Danay was the image of... brilliance, fascination. I, I, I think he's a... I mean, I think he's a philosopher. I think his production of ideas is enduringly great, and that's why I read Dane, you know, passionately. But I feel like I always hit a wall with Danay because I don't feel like he's thinking like a filmmaker. Whereas when I read Godard or when I read Homer, they were thinking like filmmakers before they knew which end of the camera to look in.
2: Well, and Godard famously said many times, I think, that um, they were writing criticism like making films. like They were already making films by writing criticism. In the 80s, he gave a conference at the Cinémathèque Française where he was criticizing contemporary critics and, I mean, he criticized everything all the time, but his his criticism at that particular moment of contemporary criticism was that critics were not making films by writing criticism and that what he and the new wave had done were doing that so yeah there is that difference
3: no i do think there is a creative side to doney and I, I think i said this in the piece i wrote about the cinema house in the world so forgive me for repeating it but i mean i actually felt you know like in a way doney is creating the films that he's seeing by writing about them that, you know, that his criticism is, is in a certain way transformative, that he is a formidably creative character, creative soul. And so his ideas are so strong that, in effect, the movies you're watching become danaified from his having written about them.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I don't want to go too far. I want to hear, do, do we want to hear about your person? I also don't yeah, want to interrupt course. you. but Because I could go on with that forever, but I feel like we have a yeah. nice path.
1: Yeah, well, so I think um, of the three of us, I think I have uh, come to Danae's work most recently. Uh, I uh, came up in academic film studies uh, with an interest in uh, the history of Cahiers, specifically, and of French criticism. I uh, was able to work with the scholar Dudley Andrew, who's written extensively about Andre Bazin and that whole era of French cinema culture. Um, And uh, in the course of working as a research assistant uh, and as a translator, I was able to come into close contact with uh, Bazin's writing um, and the writing of um, other Cahiers critics, Alain Bagala, for instance, but I never quite delved deeply into Dane's work beyond sort of a, a surface familiarity with um, sort of who he was and where he was positioned in the in the constellation of Cahiers critics. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in my work as a programmer and as a translator, I, I've sort of continued to, to have these glancing moments of contact with his thought and, and work, but it wasn't until... Uh, just recent years when um, The Cinema House in the World was published in 2022, and then uh, learning that Nicholas was working on this translation of La Rampe, uh, which would become Footlights, uh, that I sort of, my curiosity was was peaked and I uh, became, I had the opportunity to become more acquainted with his distinct critical voice and personality and perspective and, and sort of delve into the actual writing. And um, so I I sort of um, would say that my contribution to this program, this series of films that Nicholas and I have pulled together is really uh, a, a process of discovery for me because I've had the opportunity to discover his sensibility among this landscape of sensibilities that I have some background in and i have been so and was so immediately once i started diving into his writing really compelled by his mode of address because i think he holds his reader to a very high standard in a way that is uh at at first might uh intimidate but ultimately becomes welcoming once you sort of grasp that it's a gesture of respect on his part that he is to your point, Richard, that he's a philosopher of cinema. He's not just a critic reviewing films. He's thinking very deeply about what it means to look and what it means to show and what the sort of moral obligation of the artist is and the moral obligation of the audience is or the sort of moral uh, uh, complicity and complications that arise in just the act of looking at a film, of looking at an image. Uh, And um, I think that his his thinking and his writing is very challenging, but ultimately you will be surprised at how accessible it is because it is truly uh, uh, a conversation of ideas that is, uh, 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 can be accessed from wherever you are in terms of your own relationship with the films that you grew up with. He's a, he's a true cinephile. He writes extensively about his own experience with the films that he's encountered in his life in a way that's both personal and also very rigorous. And so I just, uh, uh, I've been very inspired to get to know him better and uh, get to, uh, and especially by sort of immersing myself in the films that he championed and thought very deeply about, uh, I think that provides a lens into who he was and why. You know, now in the 2020s, we are returning to his work and finding, oh, it hasn't. There's not much of this work has been translated into English, and there actually is an appetite among English speakers and English film enthusiasts um, to to hear what he had to say. So that's that's where I'm coming from uh, in this conversation. But
2: Nicholas, uh, and as as I'm sure people can imagine, it's was very inspiring for me having translated this book and having a long investment in Denny and doing this program to see Maddie getting inspired in our collaboration to, you know, we would meet every few weeks over there at Cafe Paradiso and, like, maybe we had agreed on an essay to read or something and, like, to hear Maddie's take on it, like, and feel the stuff be alive after I was, like, really in the thick of it, like, in, like, sentences and, like, how do you translate dispositif into English and things like that was just... It's been great. I I first, I found that quote from before about when he saw Night and Fog, and it's very important that I correct it because how I said it was wrong and how he said it was, of course, much better. What Denis said was, seeing Night and Fog, what a strange baptism into images, understanding at the same time that the camps were true or real and that the film was just. So forget all that bullshit I said about horror, whatever, that's just me panicking in a, in a public moment. The camps were real and the film was just. Like we could all go home after that sentence as far as I'm concerned. Like we could just all think about that for a long time. That's like really key. So Dene for me, I got into uh, cinema uh, when I was 16, 17 in 1991. Um, and I was living in Luxembourg, which is neighboring France, and neighbors France, and so French film culture was very important, and I started reading Cahiers du Cinéma to, to kind of steer me, and a few months after I started started reading Cahiers du Cinéma, there was this special issue with this man, Serge Danet, on the cover, who, you know, Keanu Reeves had been on the cover a few months earlier with my own private Idaho, Keanu Reeves in River Phoenix, and Jodie Foster was in the next On the next cover, Little Man Tate, Lovers on the Bridge was there. So, and then there's this guy I've never seen before in a black and white photograph, Serge Danet, a critic who had died. And the whole issue was devoted to people writing about this guy. And some of the people writing about him were people who I already understood were the people who were making the films that I wanted to be a part of in some way. I'm not saying like I wanted to work on them, but that was my world. I could feel that. Uh, Robert Kramer... Manuel de Oliveira, Joao César Montero, straub Rie, Philippe Garel, on and on. Maybe some more famous ones too, like more mainstream famous, but I'm not remembering right now. Anyhow, so that's how I understood that this guy existed, through his dying, which is unfortunate. Um, and, and I started to read him, and I think the best way to explain to you what he's meant to me is by two quotes from a book of interviews that was published shortly after his death, which is called Perseverance, and that was translated in England a long time ago under the name Postcards from the Cinema. Um, And I'm going to... Yeah. This is yet another thing that he said about Night and Fog and that early viewing of it. He said... These are my translations off the cuff, by the way. It's extraordinary how we always know but with a knowledge that is more or less unconscious, everything that there is to know. What he's saying there is that when he saw Night and Fog, he felt intimately concerned with this film, beyond the fact that he was living in a post-Holocaust, post-war world. He felt that this film was about him in some way. And the way that it turned out to be about him is is very dark. It's, on the one hand, he had never known his father, and he eventually learned that his father was Jewish, and that it's very likely that his father died at Auschwitz. So that the bodies, the emaciated bodies that you see in Night and Fog, to him ultimately came to represent his past, his father. And they also came to represent his future, as an emaciated man who died at 48 of AIDS. And somehow he considered that when he saw this film, he knew without knowing. My experience with Serge D'Année is not as dark, thankfully, but as I reread his works, preparing for this, preparing for this series, translating, I'm struck by so many things that embody what I want my life to be that there's no way I understood when I read them when I was 17, 18, 25, even 35. But there they are. And so I knew that this guy was the right person for me to be intellectually entangled with. And so I'm going to read what I found to be just incredible. And, and you know, I've this is from the book Perseverance, this book that his friend Serge Toubiana did. Shortly before his death, he did a book of interviews with Danet because... Danais was not going to be able to write a last book, and so it was a summation, and it was published after Dante died. He had, and to,
3: he had planned to write a book, right? Because yeah, exactly. Because all the other all the other books of Danais are collections of his previously published work with a couple of interpolated pieces, whereas like um, uh, commentaries. But the um, he had apparently intended to write a book.
2: Yeah, that's the notes that that Richard referred to. L'exercice a été profitable, monsieur. Those are the notes for a book that was never finished. And I I agree with Richard. By the way, that that's my favorite book of his, and. Samia Text and I would love to translate it. The rights are not so easy to figure out, but we're working on it. That would be the ultimate. Anyhow, this is what Danet said in Perseverance that I couldn't believe. That, just listen off the cuff translation. Even when it has happened to me that I'm not doing anything interesting, this feeling has never left me. I was not living the same experiences that others were having at that same moment. The essential is to preserve the richness of this experience, to not devalue it. That is our only good, our only wealth, our only resource. And if we are profoundly persuaded of that, that spares us experiencing Envy, jealousy, resentment, fascism, all things that have made life impossible for many people. I am totally impervious to envy. That may be my holiness. That part I don't identify with, just FYI. Um, (laughs) The only thing that interests me is to understand how the other is getting by to know his or her parameters, what he or she is up against, what he's stumbling on, and what it produces. For the power of cinema is that it has given us magnificent access to other experiences than our own. It has allowed us to share if only for a few seconds, something very different. And in those seven sentences, Serge Daney explains to me why I've spent my whole life watching movies, thinking about them, writing about them, reading books, etc. For me, it's just, it's incredible. And then I'll just say one more thing that underlines that and for me, validates the auteur theory, which I've wrestled with a lot. He says in the same book, I could not have, I could only have a relationship with that specific cinema, the one where someone takes you by the hand, someone who has a name, an auteur, and he says to you, look, this is how I look at the world. This is how I Find myself or understand myself in it. Come with me, and you will have a coherent vision of it. So that's why I'm into Serge well,
1: we're uh, Soon I want to open the questions up to the audience because we are at the point in the hour where normally we would open up the conversation but I want to get into it a little deeper before we do um, specifically in relation to the text Footlights which around which Nicholas and I have organized this uh, series The uh, I believe that the program of films you characterizes about 75% of the films that he references in the text Is that I think right? so that's or very
2: it? off the cuff yeah. but I think you know we're showing 16 features in a short The short, which, by the way, he considers one of the 12 most important films of the 70s. Introduction to... To
1: A cinematographic scene? Accompaniment to a cinematographic scene. Uh, Introduction to Arnold Schoenberg's Accompaniment to a Cinematographic Scene.
2: By Straub and Riet. It's it's extraordinary. Yes. But yeah, I think 75%.
1: And so I just want to ask each of you um, if you would like to... sort of shout out or draw attention to uh, a writing in this compil- compilation of texts that uh, excites you. Richard, you already mentioned the raw and the cooked, which is a, a, a very concise and uh, sort of brilliantly distilled account of a moment in French film history. Um, but if you just, I, I just want to invite uh, 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 a conversation about that references some of these films, because I think that the the assortment of films that captured Dene's interest uh, uh provide an illustration of his thought that is helpful.
3: Yeah, um that you know it's a funny thing about the texts and footlights because you know that the, the house style in Caes at the time was pretty dense and extremely non-subjective. Um and I don't think it's entirely representative of his, you know, entire body of work, because if you read what he read for Liberation in the 80s, it's far more conversational and journalistic. Um, But through it, and, you know, there's, here, through it, the essence comes through. And one of the texts in which the essence that ought to be self-evident now, but is so rarely expressed, um, is what he wrote about Jaws. There's a wonderful piece on Jaws in footlights. And what he, you know, sort of to me the 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 nugget of what he's talking about in Jaws is how, you know, essentially, you know, the evil, the monster, emerges not from the world, not from nature, but from the illicit desires. Of the characters in the film But it's essentially a, you know It's a discourse of the superego That is Manifested In Jaws And that to me is, you know The essential summation of Steven Spielberg's entire Career Um, You know, that it's a highly Moralistic and narrow Cinema, and He, you know, expresses a certain, you know Interest in the technique of Jaws and the um, skillful manipulation of narrative codes in Jaws, but above all, he emphasizes the sort of the repositioning of the monster as an an emanation from, you know, young people wanting sex and old people wanting adventure and older people wanting money. And um, I think it's exactly right.
1: Ultimately, we did not opt to include Jaws in the screening program, but I think it was one that I wanted to talk about in the context of this panel because I think it is a film that audiences who may not be familiar with Danae probably know Jaws. And, and uh, if you're looking for an entry point into, his, uh, 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 into the sort of prism that, that uh, Footlights constructs of his, his ideas, Jaws is a really... The, the essay on Jaws, I think, is a beautiful entry point um, to sort of understand where he's coming from.
2: And, and he touches on moralizing in other disaster films of the 70s, like Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno. So it's, it is it is a nice entry point. I have to say that um, I was dreading that question, Maddie. Um, I didn't 100% realize you were going to ask it or I would have prepared myself better. I think part of what makes Footlights both a, a great translation project for me and a, a daunting thing is that I, I'm never done with it. I never, I never completely understand it. I never absolutely grasp it. I mean, I, I think I did a good job of the translation, but the, the article on Godard that Richard referenced, which is in this thing, The Terrorized, which I translated and I understood it sentence by sentence, I honestly think I only understood what that text says yesterday morning when I read it three times, twice in English and once in French, to prepare for introducing Numéro 2. And I'm not saying that to scare people away. On the contrary, I'm saying that to invite people to engage with a text that, as Maddie so rightly said it, respects your intelligence and doesn't expect you to understand everything or understand the same thing at once or every time. It will keep giving to you. And I'm also very happy, as Richard points out, that later work of Danet is more accessible. Um, He always has a lot of facets. He always has a density, and he always loves to take an image or a metaphor or a word and run very, very far with it. And sometimes he runs too fast for a mere mortal such as myself. But there are later works, like, for instance, in The Cinema House in the World, which I should mention, Christine Puccini, very beautifully translated for Semiotext. This book is, is the ultimate challenge for me, but it's also so rewarding. And what I think is so rewarding about it is, as I perhaps have made clear in what I've said so far, is that I have tremendous respect for Serge Daney's intelligence, which is not simply the way his mind works, but the way his intelligence is grounded in an ethics. And what this book offers us, in my opinion, is to watch someone like that think. I-, I think that he was, even though later he was a newspaper writer where the deadlines are even tighter, but for Cahiers he was very poorly paid and he was also running the magazine. So what I sense in these texts is that he's writing against deadline. He was a very, very famous conversationalist. He was famous for coming out of movies and just blabbering on for hours. And you can see it in the documentary where it's three hours long and maybe there's four questions. He just goes on and it's amazing. Um, this text gives you an opportunity to, to see what maybe it was like to, to walk out of a movie with someone as brilliant as Serge, as Serge D'Anet and to see him go. And so there are moments, for instance, another movie we didn't show because I objectively, forgive me, think it's bad, Howard Hawks' Rio Lobo. Um, that text, there's an entire segment of it that that really, when I was translating it, when I read it, I feel like I'm in a dense fog. And it's a fog of Lacanian lingo. I mean, something we haven't mentioned in this panel is that in the 70s, Cahiers were very taken up with all the the jargon and, and the intellectual excitement of the era of the era. So Louis Althusser's Marxism, Jacques Lacan's psychoanalysis, etc. So you're reading about Rio Lobo, and there's just this like paragraph that's, I mean, in Rio Lobo people get swarmed by bees. I felt like I was being swarmed by jargon. It's intense, <laughs> and then you come out of that paragraph, and Serge Danet in four sentences of utter brilliance and lucidity puts forward the beloved theory of homosexuals that Howard Hawks is himself at least a homophile and that his characters are homosexual. And there it is, boom. It's just like to see that kind of process, like something work, some a writer working through something where I think he's on the edges of what he himself can understand and then to come through it and just hit perfect lucidity... And by the way, I'm not actually even saying that I agree with that theory about Hawks because the most important thing about Dane, which I would say also about Godard, is that he doesn't, they don't teach me what to think. They teach me how to think. And that's what I find in this book.
3: One of the interesting things about, I mean, forgive me for, yeah, about the, you know, the, you know, I says... Um, He said said something about, you know, the the problem with, you know, people accuse us of writing in jargon because they, you know, prefer, what are his two negative impressionistic and hedonistic criticism? Um, But at the same time, you know, he ultimately essentially says that basically the only reason anybody, meaning including himself, writes criticism is the, you know, enjoyment, the jouissance of the viewer. Um, And this is, for me, one of the fundamental questions in criticism, like, Dalet loves movies. He writes, he feels an intense passion when he watches movies. But some of the prose that we're reading in Footlights is extremely dispassionate prose. It's prose that, you know, pretends to or takes the stance of a rigorous intellectual objectivity. Um, And I think that there's kind of a gap between the person and what he was writing I think part of it is just institutional you know everybody every every writer uh who's writing for a publication that exists gets involved with the discourse of you know you know who your reader is and when you write for for in the 70s you know that you know if if you were that you're you know a lot of the people who are reading you if anybody's reading you they're going to be you know studenty types who will know about althusser and lacan and foucault and so forth um, if you're writing for Libet in the 70s and the 80s, you have a different audience. You just you know you know you're going to be writing differently. You want to have a conversation. And um, what what you know in a certain way there's a kind of critical auteurism involved in the sense that you know the filmmakers who make a person the Hollywood filmmakers of the you know 20s, 30s, 40s who impel a person to watch classic Hollywood with love are people who were not necessarily filming their lives. They were saying things that were very important about their own experiences but they were doing it in forms that were utterly impersonal. And so, you know, for Dane to perceive a deeply, what he considers a deeply personal element in a Howard Hawks Western, in which nobody resembles Howard Hawks nobody rese- there's no filmmaker, there's no dandy um they, you know, similarly, you know, Danet is essentially practicing that sort of let's say auteurist criticism, not auteurist in the sense of writing about auteurs, but of being one, of being one whose sort of public image in relation to the wider public is different from the way that the the savant, that this person who's an insider will read him.
2: You, Richard made me think of two things that are really important before we open it up. Um, one is, of course, that, yes, it's, it's not all of Dane that's in this book, Footlights. And what is so um, rewarding when you engage with dane's work, and, and English language readers will be able to do that because Semiotext has committed to translating Other books by him, and so people will be able to read his later work. Is that he walked back on some of the things that he says in, or some of the approaches in Footlights. And he says it in one of the interviews, of the late interviews, he says that at the time, they were, the Cahiers critics were more concerned with reading a film than seeing a film. And that's something that he would consider the wrong approach later. And and if you read the book, indeed, it's a lot of reading, which is a very 70s Parisian intellectual approach. But I will say, because we haven't framed it this way, that while there is a dispassionate side to some of these texts, the book is actually, I have presented it and, and with me semiotext has presented it as a kind of a generational autobiography. This is actually, it is a collection of essays, but it's the only book that Danet really put together with the idea of it being more than a collection of essays. He gathered the essays in sections, wrote long introductions to each of those sections, and those sections are personal. It's just that he's saying we more than he's saying I. And I think that one of the very interesting trajectories of Dany as a thinker is to see that trajectory from this we to the I that he embodies at the end of his life.
1: And at the same time, he's interested in um, cinema as an organizing principle. And that is one of the ways in which he links sort of his political morality with his aesthetic morality is just not to get too in the weeds, but we showed a film last night, Histoire d'Art, which is a a documentary about the struggle for abortion rights in France uh, in the 70s. Uh, And in a very uh, concise and eloquent piece about Histoire d'Art that Danet went out of his way to select, to include in this volume, uh, he discusses the way in which this film, which was banned in France, Gave rise to these sort of clandestine distribution networks that themselves formed as a kind of organizing tactic of of uh, uh, how can we get this film seen because the film itself uh, is, has value as a as a sort of political enunciation or tool that we can uh, do something with. And I think by virtue of writing about these films and articulating the power relations involved in their making and in their viewing and and distribution, he was contributing to that via what you're speaking of, Richard, the sort of auteurist approach to criticism of of, uh, 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 curating a a way of thinking about film uh, that could lead to sort of political outcomes.
3: But I also think, you know, it's a funny thing. One of the things I was thinking about on the way over here, just, you know, in the train, was how different it is to experience things forwards and backwards. I'm not relating to trains, but just, like, experiencing history forwards and backwards. Like, like you know, I saw *Ici et ailleurs* and Numéro mean and, uh, and, and, and Comment ça va, you know, when they were new films. And I didn't see them as a break from the Godard of the 60s. I, like, I didn't actually know really what he had done, but I didn't think that those things were substantially different from, you know, pierre Fou or Breathless or Vivre Saviour, Masculine and Feminine. I thought there was a continuum. Um, but I actually think, one of the things I was thinking about on the way over is the fact that La Ramp came out in, what, 1983? And at the time it came out, he was writing for Libé a few things that happened in France. And one of the things, like one of the reasons I love that essay, The Raw and the Cooked, is that in 1980, he's basically saying the French cinema is in a state of crisis and needs, is going to have to one way or the other. Not as, essentially, he's predicting radical change. Like it has to change, not in the, the ontological sense, but in the factual sense. It must, it will in fact change. Well, it sure enough changed, but of course he couldn't predict quite the reason why it changed so, namely the election of Francois, Francois Mitterrand as president of France, and the enshrinement of the 68th generation in power, who essentially carried the new wave. Like one of the stories that it's kind of in the background of Footlights is the fact that the f- new wave filmmakers were considered the enemies in the, in the Giscard years. You know, they couldn't get public funding. You know, the reason why Truffaut, he talks about Truffaut briefly as having you know, created his own system between France and the US. Well, yes, because he couldn't get money in France. Um, you know, Romare was kind of puttering around getting money from Germany and getting money from wherever he could get it because he like they were, all, they were considered, you know, the revolutionaries who made 68. You know, Jacques Rivette couldn't get, you know, the, the money from the Avance uh, sur Recette. They were all the enemies. When, when you know, when Godard was brought into television, it was like smuggling the enemy in. Um, and so you know, he couldn't predict how it was going to happen, but it indeed happened. And when at the moment that La Ramp came out, you know, French cinema was indeed in a state of extreme positive, positive turmoil. In other words, you had people, you know, you had Godard making great films that were seen by large numbers of people. Um, Romer was, you know, relaunched. Um, Truffaut was as busy as ever. Rivette even was re- relaunched. Um, and you had young, you know, young filmmakers like Carax and Ackerman There was and Garel who was making films that were finally being seen by larger numbers of people. So it was this really great moment of of, of enormous energy that resulted from practical changes. I think. That there's a secret story involved, and I don't know if Danny ever talked about this, but the secret story involved in footlights is you all think we that you know that period is put in parenthesis and has gone down the you know the, the drain of history in order for us to be at this moment. In other words, that what we've done is to repudiate what happened in the 70s in order to come out on the other side with where we are now, both in you know intellectually, politically, cinematically. What he's saying in creating. La ramp is no. What we are living now is a direct product of what we were doing under the radar, and with your essential indifference, hatred, repudiation in the seventies. That we would not have this now. That you would not have this now if it weren't for what we did in the seventies.
2: That's a that's a really really interesting theory that I won't be able to say much about because I have to think about it. But I just want to say that there's a postscript to La Rampe, which does hint at change on the immediate horizon. And I think the very last words are about something like the archaic meeting the postmodern, which if you think about someone like Léos Carax, or the the general, you know, they were talking about the the cinéma de l'image, which really doesn't make any sense, but it was like Benex, Carax, these... A new kind of French cinema at that time, but Kax was really coming out of si- silent cinema, which is what Dane means by the archaic and there's also something postmodern about it so i think it's I think it's a valid theory that he's he's that's all I'll say because well,
1: i <clears throat> I do want to uh open it up to we have time for just one or two audience questions I think uh, and then we'll be out in the lobby uh, as I mentioned uh, we'll be able to pick up a copy of the book if you like but anyone has a question we have a mic that can come around I see a hand in the back
0: Um, yeah I just like to ask you know the obvious perhaps which is for the program how did you choose what you chose I find it Really interesting in the balance between stuff i've never heard of before and uh films that people who come to see a series centered around a uh deceased French film critic are likely to have seen before or know about or you know even uh solo which I've managed still to put off seeing yet uh have absorbed so much discourse around it and I'm curious for those titles also how you um what you hope to get people to take out of recontextualizing them in in Danae's sort of philosophy.
1: Well, I think the process started with a conversation between me and Nicholas, and I want to turn it over to you, Nicholas, because you think you came to that conversation already with a set of priorities, some films that you had already identified as essential to include in the program, some of which were on the rarer side, some of which were more familiar?
2: I, I mean, to be honest, that yeah, while I was translating this book, it just, I, I'm generally not really a programmer, and, and while I was translating this book, it just occurred to me, like, wow, it's not that long a book. There aren't that many films discussed in this book. One could do a program in which you showed every single film and use it as an opportunity to think about this person, this era, this work. Um, And then, you know, Maddie and I started talking. We started thinking about scheduling. It wasn't practical to show every single film. So then it was honestly quite a quick and very organic process of following our curiosity and our taste. I I mean, I wasn't kidding. I, I just, I love Howard Hawks, but I just don't think that Rio Lobo is a very good film by Howard Hawks. So why give it space? People can see Jaws in so many different ways. Why give Jaws space? You know, the films that are, Maybe more shame that we didn't show is there's a, a very interesting essay where Danais is comparing Antonioni's film about China and the film that Joris Ivins and Marceline Loridon made in China. Um, and, and it was a surprise to, to, to Danet because the ivins Loridon film was more of, um, of an activist leftist film and the Antonioni film was more neutral. I'm speaking in very broad terms. And ultimately, Denis liked the Antonioni film better. So, you know, it, he went, like, against the, the party line in in what moved him. And so that's, that's a very interesting essay. But we just, I don't know, they, they, those films didn't quite fit. They're, they happened to be very long. So, you know, it was a, a combination of just really... Our interests and, and pragmatic stuff, like there's a lot of long films, you know, Milestones, Hitler, a film from Germany. Uh, I think we have another really long one. Big Red One's kind of long. Um, it, it, there's, no, there's no, like, deep answer about it. It's just, like, figuring it out. And, and really, for me, following my interests, I did this program so I could he- see Hitler, a film from Germany, in a movie theater.
1: Next Sunday at 3 p.m.? See see
3: it. I saw it at Hunter College in January 1980,
1: and uh, it's really worth seeing. Thank you. Uh, Nicholas, among the many fascinating things I learned from you, the the bit of information I treasure the most is knowing that Dene purposefully hired 80% homosexual film critics. (laughs) And uh, one of the aspects of Dene that interests me quite a lot is his position was one of the very few gay film critics. And my understanding is that he wasn't out until
2: the very end of his life. I don't think that's true. I, you know, it's, I'm not a scholar. I'm, I'm a passionate amateur, so I, I can't speak with tremendous authority, but I don't think that he was in the closet. I just don't think that he was as out as he came to be when people took an interest in you, Serge Daney, who represents a chunk of film history and did interviews with him in a, in a, there's a French word, testamentaire. I don't know if testament, you know, like end of life interview. So I don't think he was in the closet. Okay.
1: But I'm wondering, considering uh, how political his criticism was, and how political and moral a person he was. Did he take a great interest in in the the queer filmmakers at the time? Like, for example, is there a piece by dene on Patricia The Wounded Man, for example, or was he interested in, in Hervé Bére?
2: I believe he wrote about The Wounded Man, and it would be in the next volume of the Cinema House, which Christine is translating, so hold that thought. I have a very vague memory that he's not a fan. I mean, Danet was not a party line follower at all. Even, you know, in the 70s, in the dogmatic 70s, what I just said about the Antonioni and the Ivan's Loridon, he followed the films and he followed what the films said. And and yeah, there's not a lot of, you know, he he would have been ill at ease in our identity discourse today. And I think, I, I said this in the interview that I did with Max Levin and Screen Slate the other day. Um, I think that Dane was actually comfortable in the margins. That's why I don't think he was in the closet. I, I think that he was comfortable being gay. I know that he was comfortable being working class and for most of his life, really having very little money. And he was comfortable being this... Strange thing that a cinephile is, you know. He he thrived in in those non-normative milieus, and I think that that shows through in his writing throughout his career, in the way that he treats people and objects equally. And that's you know I thought it was. Maddie said something important, kind of in passing, about. Danet going to the trouble of including histoire d'A in this book. It's, histoire d'A was, was a big deal at the time because it was banned, but you can take another example, which is Nationality Immigrant, a film by Sidney Sakana, a young Mauritanian immigrant in Paris who made this film over five years with no money about a rent strike by um, immigrants in Paris living in, in really horrific circumstances in a, in a shelter. And that's a film that is treated absolutely equally with a Howard Hawks film, with a Steven Spielberg film. That's where I find, you know, the, what we today would call the queerness, which he obviously wouldn't, is, is in this approach of being comfortable with his position and treating everyone and everything on an equal level.
1: I just want to build on that and tie it back to Ine's question about how we selected the films in this program, because I think we we uh, in compiling this list of films both wanted to represent the sort of heavy hitters that everybody who you know has some familiarity with this milieu probably has some fluency with Godard, Truffaut, both of whom were of particular interest to Ine, but also these more marginal films that, you know, historically have been, you know, perhaps fallen by the wayside and are more difficult to see like Nationality, Immigrant, Histoire um even Hitler, a film from Germany, which by virtue of its length uh, I think is is um, rarely rarely are we having, given the opportunity to see that film theatrically, and I think uh, uh, what you're saying is true, and then we, were, we wanted to capture that in the, the lineup of this sort of even playing field between the sort of films that uh, are frequently talked about and are very much at the forefront of a certain critical analytic theoretical conversation and these other films that were uh, of interest specifically because Dene's taste was specifically what it was.
2: And then, I'll just say one thing, and then that allows incredible threads that we discovered after we had chosen the films and we started to slot days where you have films that are coming from such different production models, different parts of the world that are thematically so aligned. I mean, you know, the the really haunting theme throughout this program is is history, notably World War II, um, which makes sense given that Danet is, is a product of that period, the, the after war and the modern era. But, you know, we have, I think we have a programming day where we're showing Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One and Straub and Rie's From the Clouds to the Resistance, right? We're showing those the same day, right? Yeah, we have, and, you know, Salo might be on the same day. There's, there's these really, because all of these films in their own ways are dealing with Europe's reckoning with fascism, the camps, directly in the Fuller film, World War II. And so that is, is really a, a tremendous privilege and, and fascinating thing to do to be able to trace those lines through such different cinematic objects.
3: And this is one way in which um Danais is essential as a moral model for present-day criticism. Because for me, you know, when when you know Godard and Rivette and company were discovering, you know, classic Hollywood, but also discovering, you know, Mizoguchi in the 1950s. They were essentially telling their reader something that Serge Danet was telling his readers in the 1970s when he was writing about Histoire or about uh, nationality immigrant or um, about Hitler, a film from Germany. And it's something that I think is, the fun, you know, in a certain way, the fundamental responsibility of a, a film critic, which is to let readers know the world of movies is bigger, much bigger, than the world of the movie that's being advertised to you, than the movie that's playing in the multiplex down the block, or that's being advertised on TV, or that's, you know, getting talked about in, you know, the dominant discourse.
2: And the world of movies is the world. I just, I want to say that because that's what Footlights means. The opening essay is about, and it's actually a very personal essay, it's about little Serge Danet going to the movies with his mom and being terrified by the live attractions that were before the movie. There would be song and dance numbers and then these people would come out into the audience and ask for money. And it's quite a, a complex essay, but what I really understand from it is that this line, the footlights at the, at the foot of the screen... Is an imaginary line. There isn't a separation between us and what's on screen. It's one reality. So that's, I just wanted to touch on that notion of footlights. Let's read the essay, it's a beautiful essay, but it's also complicated. It's taken me some time to try to articulate it, and I could probably do better than what I just did.
3: Can I ask a question? Very one sentence question. This is, in fact, a, a real question, not a. Ret- did he ever write about Shaw?
2: That's an excellent question to which I don't have the answer.
3: Because I looked. I mean, I actually tried to find it. I dug around and I couldn't find anything.
2: Did Shoah come out in like
3: 1986?
2: So he would have still been covering cinema for Libération, but he could have assigned it to someone else. I mean, I can answer you by email later tonight when I get back to volume two (laughs) of Le Cinéma, La Maison Cinéma et le Monde, but I don't know the answer, actually. Oddly, I think maybe no. You know... Every time I see a movie from the 80s, I turn to these complete works to see what Dene thought. And a lot of times, jackpot, there it is. And sometimes you'd be surprised, like he just doesn't... Because he didn't write about everything. I don't
1: know. On that note, he didn't write about everything, but what he did write... I hope you all take an interest in seeking out and exploring and getting to know Serge Danet for yourselves. Uh, and to that end, as I mentioned, books are available for purchase in our lobby. Thank you all so much for being here, and thank you both.
2: Thank you.